Back in, back in the days when I was a school teacher, and this will date me a little bit, um, I used to spend a lot of time in front of a blackboard. Don't have those anymore. Whiteboards nowadays, far less fun. Uh, much harder to write on too, in my opinion. One of the challenges though in working with a blackboard in a classroom full of children, and sometimes uh, it was a pretty full classroom, was there were times where you were working on the board with your back turned to the classroom, and so it, it paid to develop what was known as eyes in the back of your head. <laughs> because on occasions when you were turned uh, working away on the board doing some writing and whatnot, there'd be some recidivist in the back row, and I'm not going to pick on anyone in the back row. <laughs> I can barely even see the back row. <laughs> Actually, uh, Jim here, who typically, whenever the teacher is not looking, would be getting up to some sort of mischief, like pulling Lynn's hair or poking the person in front of him, would be getting up to mischief, and you needed to be onto that because you did not want that sort of person getting away with that. So eyes in the back of your head was really strategic and I had a very, very significant ally in my campaign uh, in this because I'd be working away on the board and I would see Jim doing something and say, Jim, get back into your seat, thank you. And he would be thinking, how did he do that? <laughs> how did you do that, Mr H? That's what they used to call me, Mr H. How did you do that? I said, I've got eyes in the back of my head and he'd be going, that's, that's not a thing. But how did he figure that? I actually had a really strategic ally and uh, a significant one. Her name was Her Majesty Queen Elizabeth II. <laughs> because in those days, pretty much every classroom used to have a framed picture of a very youthful Queen Elizabeth II hanging on the front of the classroom wall. And before the class started, before the year started, I would pay a little bit of attention to exactly where that classroom picture was, uh, hang it there in a little bit of a reflection off the glass. And it was virtually impossible for the people sitting out here to realise that when I was standing here doing this, I could see pretty much everything that was going on behind me. And so the Queen was uh, an absolute asset and uh, I probably wouldn't propose um, that as an argument for the constitutional monarchists to say let's keep the monarchy, but the Queen was absolutely of help to me in, in doing that work. Now, maintaining class control is the question that every teacher asks and some absolutely wrestle with. It's a question that parents often ask too, isn't it? What are my children up to when I'm not looking? I don't know about you, but there's been occasions even when, um, when our grandchildren have been playing in a bedroom where my wife or myself have kind of just gone, had a little look to see what's going on there. What are they up to when no one's looking? And it's not only parents of little children that ask this question, is it? It's parents of teenage children. What are they doing when we're not around? Can we trust them when we're away with our house, with our possessions or whatever it might be? And it's a question that employers ask as well. How can I be sure that my employee is trustworthy and will be doing the right thing, will be applying themselves in my absence and especially if I am absent? 
And that idea, uh, this idea of trustworthiness or faithfulness runs through the parable that we had read earlier, the parable of the ten miners, or if you go to Matthew chapter 25, as I said before, the parable of the talents. There's a lot of parallels between those two stories, uh, and there's probably um, the story that Jesus told reflecting the interests of both Matthew and Luke. I suggest to you, uh, and this is born out of personal experience, that this parable might actually be potentially uh, one of the most misapplied parables of Jesus. And I say that from my perspective because um, I, I reckon as a young person I heard this story many, many times over and the application was always, you know, God gives us gifts to use, talents, and if we don't use them to his glory, they'll be taken away from us. So use them well. It's a parable about stewardship, right? That was kind of where I landed for a number of years. But there's a whole lot more going on in this parable than that simplistic kind of application allows. It's a very rich, very complex and challenging parable. In fact, Matt said to me this week, um, we've been looking at these parables of Jesus, you know, this is Matt's words, and I absolutely agree. He said, I thought this was going to be simple. You know, they're just the parables, right? But as soon as we start drilling into them, uh, we discover there's layers of complexity and there's richness that we perhaps are at risk of missing out on if we contain them or confine them to the kind of stories that we might hear in kids' church. This parable is, uh, is as rich and complicated as any it does need to be understood uh, in light of the Middle Eastern culture and customs and it needs to be approached really carefully because the application, you know, you just need to use the talent God's give you. Stewardship's a good application. Uh, there's a broader s a scope of scripture that would support this idea that we need to steward our resources well. But let me say, uh, if we drill into this parable, there's another application that kicks a bit like a mule. And that is faithfulness. Faithfulness in the absence of the master in this period before Jesus returns, what does it mean to do the business of our king? What does it mean to actually own our faith in an antagonistic context? Let's have a look um, at this parable. The events of chapter 19 happen in the context of Jesus and his disciples heading from Galilee to Jerusalem for the Passover feast. This is the last time that Jesus is going to head to Jerusalem. He's on his way to his crucifixion. And so there's a series of really significant events that are taking place here. In chapter 19, uh, verse Verse 1, Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. He's on his way to Jerusalem. It's the time of the Passover. And just keep in mind that the Passover event was, was probably the most significant event in the Jewish calendar. And it reminded the people of a time when God brought his people, his captive people, out of Egypt. It reminded the people of a time when God did an amazing act of liberation. And of course, the Jewish people in Jesus' time were living under the oppressive yoke of the Romans and they were looking for that same kind of liberation. When is God going to reveal himself? When is God going to release us from the Romans? Maybe at Passover time. 
maybe God will do something around this time. And so there was this air of expectation. I'm not sure um, how to illustrate this in terms of our time, whether we could describe a time where we would have the same kind of anticipation. I don't like using football illustrations, uh, and this one doesn't even come near it anyway, but if your team won the AFL Grand Final last year, and I, <laughs> this will display my absolute ignorance, I don't even know who won last year, and don't bother telling me, uh, but you would come into the new season with an air of expectation. You know, we took the premiership last year, maybe we're here again this year, let's do it again. Does that work? No, okay, bad illustration, forget that. <laughs> we just back the video up a bit and uh, we'll start again. Uh, there's this sense in Jerusalem around Passover time of excitement because God might do something. Jesus rocks into Zacchaeus, the tax collector's house. Uh, we talked about him a little while ago, I think actually only in the context of the song. Um, but uh, Zacchaeus repents in a most amazing way. He uh, he says basically I I've give half of my possessions to the poor if I've cheated anyone out of anything I'll pay back four times the amount and Jesus makes a really significant statement he says to Zacchaeus today salvation has come to this house because this man too is a son of Abraham now that would have got some excitement in the crowd because if salvation has come even to this bloke this Zacchaeus, maybe God's going to do something else. There's this, what we might call, and I'll use this word, apocalyptic end times excitement surging through the crowd. This is the context of the parable that we're about to come to. Because we come to verse 11 and, and uh, we read, while they were listening to this, that's the people gathered around there listening to what Jesus said to Zacchaeus, Jesus went on to tell them a parable because he was near Jerusalem and get this, and the people thought that the kingdom of God was going to appear at once. So this, this sense, it's about to happen. This thing that we've waited for all these years is about to happen. Jesus was right near Jerusalem. Uh, something exciting is about to happen. But Jesus says, hang on a second, let me tell you a parable. A parable that will, uh, will actually help shape your thinking. A parable that in a nutshell communicated that the idea that the kingdom is coming is true, but... It's going to be a little while. And this is one of the, uh, how shall we say this, one of the paradoxes Christians even today live with. The kingdom is here, but it's not here in its fullness. It's coming, but we don't know when. We're told it's imminent, and we've been said there are signs, but we're still not sure. And so this is the kind of context that this parable is spoken into. So let me invite you just for a moment to put aside ideas like I used to have that this is all about stewardship and think about it from the point of view of faithfulness. The parable starts uh, in a really strange way, verse 12. G uh, Jesus said, A man of noble birth went to a distant country to have himself appointed king and then returned. Now, uh, we talked a little bit about this as a staff through the week and thought, you know, when does that ever happen? Like, our Prime Minister doesn't fly across to England to get a royal stamp of approval to become Prime Minister. It doesn't work like that. We don't experience that. But actually, historically, it was not uncommon. 
Back in around about 40 BC, Herod, who became Herod the Great, historically we know, um, Herod went to, uh, uh, actually he escaped, um, he escaped the Parthians who had taken over uh, let me just come back to my notes here. Yeah, he, he escaped the Parthians who'd occupied Jerusalem. He went to Rome and, uh, and sought to be named king. And on the motion of Antony and Octavian in the Roman Senate, Herod was declared king of the Jews. And so there's a historical antecedent of a person going from locally to be made king and to come back as the named king. That, that actually happened. After Herod's death, he had three uh, sons appointed, Antipas, um, Archelaus, and Philip. And of course, they were the, historically, we know they, they ruled different parts of Judea, but there was a bit of tension, and, and Archelaus and Antipas decided they wanted to be named king in the manner of their father, so they headed off for Jerusalem too. Only for Archelaus, it didn't work out quite so well. Because historically, and Josephus, the Jewish historian, tells us this, Archelaus was hated by the people. And so when he went to Rome to be appointed king, the Romans said, get out of here, buddy. No way. Antipas was given the green light. Archelaus was given the boot. And so in times of political transition, this would happen. And there was no certainty that the person who was going to be made king would come back as king. Now that could get a little bit tricky because if you had supported that person, you could be in a little bit of difficulty. You know how um, politics works in our world today, not so much in our country, mercifully, but in many parts of our world, where if you back the wrong horse politically, you can very quickly find yourself in all sorts of strife. And so think about that in the context of this parable, um, a time of political transition, a time when a nobleman has gone off to be made king and uh, there's absolutely no certainty on the part of all of the subjects that he will actually be made king. And in fact, uh, there are a number of people we see here in verse 14 in this parable, the subjects hated him and sent a delegation after him to say, we don't want this man to be made king. So, back to verse 13, in this parable, the, the nobleman called his uh, 10 of his servants and he said to them, here are 10 miners, that's about 30 months wages, uh, about two and a half years worth of cash. Put this money to work, he said, until I come back. Now, in the original language, it's equally easy and possibly even more appropriate to say, uh, this is what he said, engage in trade, do business with these resources that I've given you. Go about business in my name, because I'll be back. In other words, uh, set up a, a shop or do something, you know, trade in my name. Now, what's the risk in that? You're publicly saying, I'm doing business in the name of this fellow. And not everyone liked this fellow. Clearly, in verse 14, because a number of subjects hated him, sent a delegation after him in the hopes that he would not be made king. And so while it seems like a simple enough expectation, we shouldn't overlook the challenge that this instruction posed. What are the servants to do? Do they engage in trade as they were asked to do? Do they make it obvious that they support the master, even in what was obviously a hostile environment? Or should they just sit back quietly and wait and see what happens? 
let's just see how this pans out, shall we? Let's not be too obvious, just in case it goes belly up and, and we're made to look rather stupid or worse. Bearing the money actually would make a whole lot of sense until it became clear whether or not they'd backed the right horse. But here's the question that the nobleman really wanted to answer. And this, I think, is a bit of a kicker for us in this parable. The question is this. Are you willing to openly declare yourself to be my loyal servant in my absence, knowing that there will be many people who oppose you? Are you willing to actually stand up and engage in business in my name in a hostile environment while I'm not here? You can kind of see where the application might go, can't you? If this was the question that Jesus was asking of his disciples, if this is what Jesus wants us to take from the parable, that's pretty heavy stuff. What does it actually mean to own the business of our master in a hostile environment? As a Christian convert living in an Islamic context, or in fact, as a Christian convert living in any hostile context, you would have great interest in this parable, wouldn't you? You can see why this would be of particular concern for you. Christians living in minority contexts are much more sensitive than we are to what it means to live where the majority of people said, we hate Jesus, we hate God, we don't want anything to do with Jesus being our king. The question, are you willing to openly declare yourselves to be my loyal servants in my absence, knowing that there will be many in the world who oppose you? That's a hard question. And yet it's a question that Jesus puts to us as well. We come to verse 15. He was made king and returned home. Then he sent for the servants to whom he had given the money in order to find out what had been gained with it. Again, um, there are very good cases to be made to say the English translation, what has been gained with it, is a little unfortunate. Sometimes I think we read this parable through the eyes of materialism or the materialistic secular culture. There's another very, very legitimate way of translating this, uh, this phrase, has been gained from it, and that is to say um, how much business has been transacted. Come together, my servants, how much business have you done in my name? Now you might ask, is that a legitimate translation? I actually think it is in light of what comes next. Because the master calls the servants and the first one comes and he says, your miner has earned 10 more. Now this guy's clearly engaged in some kind of business. He's done very, very well. The servant's also very clear, and, and, and hear this please, uh, your miner has earned 10 more. H whose was it in the first place? It's yours. Your miner has earned, the servant doesn't come and say, hey master, I have done a stellar job. I have worked so hard. I have used that money and I, I, I. Your miner has earned 10 more. The growth, the increase is actually as a result of the generosity of the master, right? Catch that. That's an important point in this parable. And I was really um, glad this morning with a couple of the songs that Beck chose, uh, just reminding us that the growth of God's kingdom is actually not ours to claim. It's God's. It's enshrined in our church uh, mission statement, which talks about glorifying God as he grows his kingdom. 
it captures what Paul said in 1 Corinthians 3 verses 6 to 8. What after all is Apollos, Paul says, and what is Paul, only servants through whom you came to believe as the Lord assigned to each his task. I planted, Apollos watered, but what? God made it grow. And so even in this parable is a really significant message. This servant comes and says, your, the, your generosity is what's actually resulted in the multiplication. Not my expertise, not my good business. It's your generosity. The master then actually goes on and commends the servant. And note what he says there, uh, verse 17. Well done, my good and faithful servant, because you have been what? Because you have been trustworthy. That's an important word. It would have been in another context. You have been really successful. But that's not what the master says. The master actually commends the servant for his trustworthiness. Which links back to what I just said a moment ago about the business that's being transacted. What the master was most interested in is not how much money you've made. If he, all he wanted to know was that, he would have said, just show me the books, let's have a look at the books. But he doesn't, he said, I want to, I want to know how much business has been transacted. Let me show you, the servant says, you've been trustworthy. You've been faithful. And so we see uh, what, his, uh, what the consequences was, his reward. Um, the master could have, you know, if you're reading this parable and never having come to it before, you might say, uh, wow, this is fantastic. The master should have said, terrific work, my faithful servant. I'm going to give you a holiday uh, on the Aegean coast. I've got a holiday mansion down there. Take your time, enjoy a break, have a holiday. And look, take 10% for yourself. You've done such a good job. But that's not what happens either, is it? There's a really important discipleship lesson. You can figure some of this out for yourself because basically that's David saying, I haven't got time to unpack it. Um, one of the blessings of faithfulness is not privilege, it's actually more responsibility. Those God who has entrusted and exercised faithfulness with what God's entrusted them with, he actually says, take more responsibility, not take it easy. Just think about that one. Likewise, the second servant is rewarded with more responsibility. You'll see there in verse 18. And then we come to the third, the one who had buried his money in, uh, in the ground to keep it safe. Now, why do that? Well... Again, if we think about the Middle Eastern context during times of political upheaval, it was uncertain. It was uncertain about what the future would look like. The safest thing you could do with your currency was put it in the ground. And I'd be prepared to bet too that if perchance uh, through this week um, our government came out and said, guess what everyone, uh, we're broke, uh, we cannot pay anybody, uh, the government's collapsed, uh, what would you do tomorrow morning? You'd be down at the bank trying to get your coin, wouldn't you? And you and everybody else would be lining up there, the banks would, uh, would implode, and those who had money in their accounts might kiss it goodbye. Inflation through the roof, ta-da to all of your assets. And so in uncertainty, that's what happened in the Middle East. People would typically bury it in the ground. And it wasn't a bad strategy in a time of uncertainty. 
The third servant uh, actually then is faced with a little bit of a challenge here. Um, he came and said, Sir, here is your miner. I've kept it, laid it away in a piece of cloth. That's not a bad strategy if you don't know what the future is going to look like. Uh, and then he goes on to make some excuses. What he was most frightened of was that the master would not return. He wasn't prepared to go doing business because he wasn't sure the master was going to return. So instead, what he thinks he'll do is actually compliment the master and in a, in a backhanded way actually insults him. Um, he says to the master, um, I was afraid of you because you're a hard man. Taking what you did not put in reaping what you did not sow. And this um, links us to what I was saying earlier um, in the service. The, the, the first servant, the second servant, the, the ones who engaged in trade understood their master. They trusted their master. They were faithful to their master. This guy has a corrupted view of the master. Wasn't certain that he was gonna come home and his understanding of his master was corrupted. You're a hard man. You plant, uh, sorry, you reap where you don't sow. You take what you've not put in. Now, um, I understand, again, culturally, uh, this used to happen. The Bedouins, around this same time, actually celebrated uh, Bedouin raiders who would go and take what they had not planted, harvest where they had not sown, that sort of stuff. So culturally, that kind of thing did happen. But that's not what's going on here for this guy. Um, this, this unfaithful servant has a, a twisted view of the master and confirms, I think, what I was talking about just a little bit earlier. The way we live often influences the way we think about God. And if we have a corrupted view of God, it's actually hard to break through that. And then the response of the master here in verses, uh, sorry, in verse 22 needs to be understood really clearly. And I confess to you, you know, years ago, I actually think I had this wrong. The master replied, I will judge you by your own words, you wicked servant. Now, what the master says next is not, I am a hard man, you're right. He's actually saying, I think, to this servant, oh, you thought I was a hard man, did you? Taking out what I did not put in and reaping what I did not sow. Is that true? Well, that's not true, but that's what you think, isn't it? And if that's what you think, come to verse 23, why didn't you put my money on deposit so that when I came back, I could have collected it with interest? Now, here's an interesting little insight too, because in Jewish law, um, gaining interest was actually illegal. It's called usury. If you really think I'm a crook, why didn't you behave like I was a crook, is what the master was saying. Because if I was a crook, I wouldn't care less about you breaking the law. So go ahead and do it, who cares? So the master's kind of caught the servant out in his own uh, complicated view of him. And while there's so much more we could cover off in this parable, and we'll need to just talk briefly in a couple of moments about the very, very rough ending, let's just make a couple of applications, things that we might consider. We can talk about stewardship from this parable, of course, using the things that God has given us in the broader context of the scripture, a good application. But I do want to put it to you that I think this parable is as much about faithfulness as it is about stewardship, perhaps more about faithfulness. 
as the master distributed his resources, he was in effect saying to the servants, once I have received my kingly power, it's going to be easy for you to declare your loyalty to me. What I'm really interested to know, though, is how you'll conduct yourselves when I'm absent and you have to pay a high price for declaring yourself loyal to me. That will actually show your true faithfulness. And the application from that is pretty obvious. Although with the coming of Jesus, the kingdom has arrived, and we talked about that just a few moments ago, there will be some time before it comes in its fullness. And Jesus is interested in how his people conduct themselves and use the resources that have been given to them in the meantime. Are we prepared to engage in the business of our master in a world characterised by people who don't want Jesus to be king? And it's perhaps a little bit hard for us to think about that in our context because if we're bluntly honest, we've lived in a very benign, easy world, haven't we, really? It's not been difficult to declare ourselves as Christians. Perhaps it's becoming more difficult. Perhaps it's becoming less acceptable. But there are many people who live in our world to this very day who find that very, very difficult indeed. For someone to stand up and say, yes, I'm a follower of Jesus, could mean death. For someone to stand up and say, I'm a follower of Jesus, it might mean loss of a job or whatever it might be. How do we conduct ourselves when we're surrounded by people who hate the master we serve? The Apostle Paul actually addressed this question with the Thessalonian church, Christians who lived at a time of significant persecution. And uh, those who declared Jesus as Lord in those days, in the times of the Thessalonians, were actually persecuted for it. And so Paul writes to them and says, look, there's some things that you, could, that you are doing, in fact, and things that you need to do to declare your loyalty to the king. Uh, let me skip through just a few of them. You can read 1 Thessalonians later with this lens on. Um, but here are some of the things that Paul said. Um, I commend you for your, for your work produced by faith. Even in this difficult context, Paul says to the church in Thessalonica, you, you're doing the work of the gospel and it's empowered by your faith. Um, I'm impressed by your labour prompted by love and your endurance inspired by the hope in the Lord Jesus Christ. They're getting on with the business of doing business. And then in a really lovely expression, which I've read over the years and thought, this is just lovely, isn't it? Your faith rings out like a bell. What a wonderful expression. What a wonderful compliment Paul pays to that church. Your faith is not like some kind of dull tap on the floor that can't be heard by anybody. It's like a bell that's ringing out everywhere, even in the midst of persecution. And then uh, Paul goes on, and you can read through, just jumping through to chapter 4 of 1 Thessalonians. Paul talks about what it looks like living to please God, and he, uh, sorry, he identified a number of things. He talks about avoiding sexual immorality, loving one another with brotherly love, making it an ambition to lead a quiet life, to focus on matters that pertain to you and not meddle in matters that belong to others. In other words, keep your nose in your business and not in the business of others. The people. Uh, things like that are actually demonstrations of what it means to do business for the king 
while living in a context where the gospel is hated. It's not easy to live well in a context where people declare their hatred for our Lord, but the challenge of this parable is to do that because that's the kind of faithfulness God's looking for. Backing up to Luke chapter 18, verse 8, it might even be on the same page as it is here in my Bible. Jesus asked this question, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on earth? Will he actually find people who've been going about the business? So verse 24, then he said to those standing by, take his minor away from him, give it to the one who has 10. The one who has been faithful is given more responsibility. The people found that hard to believe. But uh, the master said, yes, I tell you that everyone who has more will be given, but as for the one who has nothing, even what has, he has will be taken away. Verse 27 is tricky. But those enemies of mine who don't want me to be king over them, bring them here and kill them in front of me. Give them a good toweling. It's not very godly, is it? Let's, let's deal with that. Let's just first of all keep in mind this is a parable. It's a story that Jesus told to illustrate a point and we don't know what happens next. In some senses, it's, it's not the final scene, is it? We don't know what happens next. In fact, in a rather annoying kind of a habit Jesus had, if I can say that with all respect, there are a number of parables that Jesus didn't finish, to our satisfaction at least. For instance, um, in a few weeks' time, Matt's going to be dealing with the story of the prodigal, uh, yes, the prodigal son. You know how that ends. You know, the prodigal come home, the father celebrates, the older brother's grumpy. Are they reconciled? We don't know. I'd love to know. It's a story. But we don't know. What about the story of the Good Samaritan, for instance? The guy ends up uh, um, being treated. Does he actually get home safely? We don't know. Jesus doesn't finish the story. Or at least he doesn't tell us that part of the story. Here again, we have a story that is, in some senses, unfinished. Keep in mind, too, that this story is being told in an Eastern context, not a Western context. Now, let me illustrate this. A few years ago, um, I travelled into um, Thailand with a guy from the Southern Highlands, a Papua New Guinean guy. His name was James Ugari, and I'm so thankful James was with me when I was travelling because he was good company. But he was most useful to me in the markets. If you've ever been to somewhere like Thailand, you will know if you want to buy something, there's no price on it. You have to negotiate the price. And I'm hopeless at negotiating the price. And even more hopeless because uh, a Thai businessman or a Thai market owner will see uh, a tall, affluent-looking Westerner turn up and think, you little beauty, going to take this guy down a fair bit. But my friend James, who was... Um, different to me um, he was he was just brilliant so this is what we would do um, I would say to James you see that that little carved elephant I just want to take that home for my daughter um, and he'd say what do you reckon it's worth I said look I'd, I'd pay f say 40 baht I reckon that you know that, that's what I reckon and James would say leave it with me and James would go over to the businessman and, uh, and he'd say, oh, hey, how are you doing? Good to see you. Is this your... You know, immediately you start building relationship, right? 
keep that in mind. Immediately start asking about his family, or oh, this your store, how long have you been doing this relationship? That's the key. And then he'd say, this elephant over here, how much would that be? And the businessman said, oh, I think maybe, maybe 100 baht, 100 baht. And James said, oh, come on, you're killing me, you're killing me, I can't, no, it's not, come on. 100 baht, this is not worth 100 baht. Uh, and the businessman said, James, what do you reckon? He said, oh, I reckon, mate, maybe 20 baht. Well, the businessman would have conniptions, 20. How can you possibly be making money, 20 baht? No, my brother, you can't have it for 20. Well, they'd backwards and forth, and guess where they'd end up? 40 baht. Eastern. Eastern way of thinking. If you're reading this story, apply that Eastern way of thinking to the end of the story. The master says, bring those enemies of mine who did not want me to be king. Bring them here and kill me in front of me. This is just the first salvo in what's going to go backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards, backwards and forwards. It's not the end of the story. An Easterner facing this question will go, okay, no, let's back up. A Western will go, whoa, whoops, that's it, bad. An Eastern will be going, this is just the start of a long period of negotiation. Keep in mind the broader context of the scripture which says the wages of sin is death but the gift of God is eternal life. And if we take this as the final, uh, the final summary of the story, if we metaphorically understand the master as God and this is the end, it kind of flies in the face of everything we know about grace, doesn't it? kind of rubs us right against everything we've believed about the goodness of God and the forgiving nature of God. So we've got to kind of read it in that broader context. But the challenge of this parable really comes back to what I've spoken of on a number of occasions already. Are you willingly to openly declare yourselves to be my loyal servants in my absence, knowing there will be many in the world who oppose you? That's an interesting question, isn't it? That's the question we need to keep in mind, even in our relatively benign context. Let's pray. God, we are thankful for the context that we live in. By and large, we've not experienced the kind of persecution that others in our world experience on a daily basis. But it is becoming more difficult, less acceptable, socially not as easy to own Christ as Saviour and Lord. And so, Father, we pray today as your community for both boldness and wisdom, to be bold in owning our faith in the public sphere and wise in the way that we do that. Lord, we thank you again for this parable. We thank you for the richness of it, for the depth that sits underneath it. But Lord Jesus, above all, we worship you, the one who told it. And we pray that you will help us daily to express our faithfulness wherever you take us. And so as each of us here consider where we will be through this week, the context that we will be in, the people that we will be with, we think about what it means to be a faithful follower of Jesus, a faithful servant of our master in that place. What does it mean to conduct the business of the kingdom wherever we might be. And it will involve, perhaps, on occasions, conversations. It'll certainly involve the posture and our attitudes, the way that we act, our integrity, our transparency, our honesty, our truthfulness, our trustworthiness. It may impact our generosity, our hospitality, our grace, our willingness to serve.
And so our prayer today, Lord, is that this is not just an academic exercise, not just something that we think about, but something that we can apply, something that we can live out. And we need the help of your Holy Spirit to do that. So fill us again today, afresh with your wonderful blessing of life and presence, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.